Well, this morning, before we dive into Romans chapter 13, we're going to dismiss our kids who are fourth grade and under to head upstairs for a kids' crew worship time. It's a time that's open and available for kids fourth grade down to pre-K who will head upstairs with our leaders. They have a host of fun activities that they've prepared for them, and I'm grateful for those who invest in our children. While they're making their way forward for that, let me also just talk about something related to our kids. At the end of the month, two weeks from today, on October 30th, is our annual fall festival that we do. That will be that Sunday evening from 5 o'clock to 7 o'clock. That's typically a huge outreach event that we do. We fill the parking lot full of all kinds of fun and activities and people. And uh, it's, it's going to be a great evening. If you were in a Sunday school department this morning, particularly one of our adult departments, you had the opportunity to get signed up to help with that in some way. But if you're looking to get plugged in and connected and you'd like to do that, we would uh, we, we'd love to, um, to share with you ways that you can get connected and that you can serve for that event. And so on the inside of your worship guide, this very first announcement that you see where it talks about Fall Festival— it tells you that you can see Charlotte. If you want to get contacted, you can see Charlotte's email address is listed below here. You can find her, find, uh, find me, find Brad after the service today. We'll help connect you as well. We'd love to get you involved in that. And then certainly we want you to be here that evening as well. So come, invite your neighbors, invite your friends, coworkers, that sort of thing to come that evening. We're going to have a lot of time, a lot of great candy, a lot of fun activities for kids on the 30th from 5 to seven. And so put that on your calendar, uh, make that a, a part of your, your weekend a, a few weeks from now when we get to that. Romans chapter 13. Last week, we looked at Romans chapter 13, and, and the passage that we focused on, the first seven verses, really dealt with the idea of the state, the relationship between the church and the state. And, and so we spent our time and our focus on that. But there was there was a, a phrase that was a part of the last verse that we studied last week that becomes kind of a transitional phrase that, that carries us into the text this week. So even though uh, the, we're going to begin in verse 8 when we read together in a minute, you can glance back and look at verse 7, and there's this word, oh, right, that we're to pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And it's that idea of what we owe to others that carries over a transition into the text that we're going to study this morning. I'll tell you that the, really the, the primary heart of the passage that we're going to study this morning, verses 8 through 14, or essentially the second half of Romans chapter 13, really focuses on the coming day of the Lord. And there's a, there's a phrase even in one of these verses, it's down in verse 11, that talks about the salvation is nearer than when we started. The next verse, the day is at hand. That day that this passage is teaching of is that, that, that coming day. What I referred to this past Wednesday night, if you were here for our study that we do on Wednesday nights as we're working our way through the book of Isaiah, the capital D, day of the Lord, the, big, the coming day of God's judgment when God will, will ultimately deal with the sin, the brokenness, the pain, all that, 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 that has happened in this world as an, an effect of the fall, someday God's going to make all of that right. And in that day of judgment, what the Bible typically refers to as the day, that day, then we will see God restore all things. But the question is, 
how do we live between that coming day and this day? How do we live with that tension? And that's going to really be the focus of our passage today and our study today is how we're to live in light of the things that we know are true, the things that are coming, and where we are and how we have lived at this point. So what's the the tension that we live with, or how is it that we're to live in light of that tension? Some years ago, there were a new batch of Star Wars movies that were released. You remember, you remember these, right? There was, so when I was a kid, the original set of Star Wars movies were released. The, the first three in the trilogy, which we came to know as episodes four, five, and six. And so the story begins mid-story. And, and we find out later, you know, that, that this is the, what we thought of originally as the first three episodes were really the, the, the second batch of three, episodes four, five, and six. And so they released Released, they released in the late 90s, they released the prequels. The prequels were the episodes that told the story before the story, so to speak. And I was a big Star Wars fan as a kid. Those were some of my favorite stories, some of my favorite movies. I love that. I really looked forward to the prequel movies when they came out. And I know they, they drew like mixed reviews depending on how diehard of a Star Wars fan you are as to whether you like them or you don't, whether you cared for the characters like Jar Jar Binks. That's always one that'll get Star Wars fans going, right? Or you didn't, that sort of thing. And, and I'm not going to, that's not the point of the message at all this morning. But the, the point I'm wanting to connect is it's the idea of the story before the story. So when the, when the second set of movies came out, episodes one, two, and three, we already knew how things were going to go in episodes four, five, and six. So we watched movies one, two, and three, and we watched the unfolding of this story knowing what, what we already knew about how the story was going to play out and where things would end. And in some ways, that's how we read Scripture. When we read Scripture and we study the Word, we know how things will play out ultimately. We have, in effect, in the book of Revelation, we have the completion of, the final culmination of all these things that we're trusting in, believing in, the completion of this story of God's redemptive work in the lives of his creation. And so we know ultimately how the story ends. We can look to the end and we understand, and yet there are other things along the way that fill in the gaps. There are other, other events that transpire and take place. We live with that tension. It's the story before the story, right? And so as we're living in that tension of the story before the story, we need to ask ourselves, well, how am I supposed to act? What, how am I supposed to respond? What is it that I'm supposed to do in this current moment, in this present place in the world of theology, there is a, a phrase that gets used that we refer to this as a realized eschatology, okay? So let me explain what I mean by that, realized eschatology. Eschatology is the study of last things. The word eschaton is the word that means the end. And so ology, we know biology, zoology, the ologies, right? That's the study of. So it's the study of the end, the study of last things is what eschatology means. That's a, a theological term that we often use to talk about things that are coming. Or when we think about the, the coming of Christ, the return of Christ, the, the final judgment, the, the things that we see in the book of Revelation, that's the, that's the eschaton, that's the last days, and it's the study of those things. 
A realized eschatology is the understanding that we know what's going to happen someday, but we also live in light of some of those promises now. So they're realized. So we can trust in Jesus by faith, knowing that someday he's coming again, but also believing in the promise that he, he cleanses us of our sin. He gives us a new identity. We're, we're washed, we're made clean. And so there's a tension that sometimes you'll hear me refer to or other preachers, other, other Bible teachers refer to as this tension between the already and the not yet. The already meaning what we have realized, what we know to be true now, what we experience now, and the things that we know are coming someday, the not yet. And that's where we are now. It's in that tension between the already and the not yet, in the tension between what we know will be ultimately true and where we are living today. And this morning's text points us to how we are to live in this moment, in light of the truths that we believe, in light of the promises of God made to us about the future, but also the call to live anchored to those promises, anchored to that hope, today in the midst of this brokenness and this reality. And this is so important for us to understand because all of us experience brokenness and pain and trouble and trials in this moment, in this reality, in this season, in this time where we live. We understand what it's like to experience pain and heartache and suffering and, 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 and wrong and how are we to live in light of those things? Do we give up? Do we throw up our hands? Do we press on? Do we, do we press forward? Do we, do we lean into the Lord? Do we draw away from the things? Of the, what do we do? Well, this passage is going to give us some very practical advice on how we can live in light of what we know to be true, what is coming, and the tension of where we are today. And I'm excited for us to study that together. So let's read in Romans chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 8, and we're just going to finish Romans 13 together. Again, remember this word O, the very first word here, that's the transition. This is the transition. This is connecting what we studied last week to what we studied today. O, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Verse 11, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires." What an important text this is for us to understand, because as we'll see, even as we work our way through this systematically this morning, that the things that Paul is writing about in, in that day could have easily have been written about today. What, what he speaks to his original audience about speaks so poignantly to us today because we wrestle against these same 
these same realities today. We find ourselves in similar situations where this is what we face. This is what we're against even still today in this moment. This, this tension between the already and the, and the not yet, what we know to be true and where we live today. And so there are five things that I see in the text this morning that, that we're to do as a response to our understanding of what is coming. In verse 12, we see this phrase, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So the idea is that we're to live knowing that the, the time of darkness, the time of uncertainty has passed. We live now in the day is at hand, meaning that it's time to work, right? When you, when you were a, a child and, and your parents would come in your room in the morning and they would stir you and, and they would wake you up like if they're getting you, getting you up for school, right? It's time to get up. They would say, hey, it's, it's daytime. It's time to get going, right? Something along those lines. When you're waking someone up, when you're rousing them from sleep, you're going to say something along the lines of, okay, it's time to get up. It's time to get going. It's time. We got to do, you know, the day is here. It's time. And that's the, that's the point that Paul's making. The day is at hand. It's time to go to work. It's time for us to, understanding these truths, it's time for us to act because today, it's time, it's, it's, it's time to go to work might be a way that we would say that. And so because the day is at hand, because it's time for us to go to work, how are we to respond in this moment with this tension? There are five things that I see specifically that this text points us to. And so I, I've given them to you here. You can follow along. Because the day is at hand, first of all, we must love others. Because the day is at hand, we must love others. We must love. From verse 8 through verse 10, we see the specific instruction of how we are to love and how love is the fulfillment of the law. Verse 8, it says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. Now, what we saw in verse 7, chapter 13, verse 7, is that we're to, we're to give everyone what they're due, what we owe them. Honor, you know, taxes for whom taxes are due, honor for whom honor is due, respect for whom respect is due. But then he, he makes this transitional statement. But you shouldn't owe anyone anything except love. Now, to be clear, okay, this is not an explicit teaching about the practice of borrowing and lending money, okay? So this does not mean that in order to faithfully fulfill Romans chapter 13, verse 8, you shouldn't have a mortgage on your house or you shouldn't, uh, you, you shouldn't uh, borrow money for whatever, right? To purchase a car or this thing or that thing or a business loan or that this isn't a statement explicitly about lending money or about borrowing money. The Bible does talk about some of those things. And I think in general, the practices that the Bible endorses or the Bible advocates is that we should walk in wisdom, that we should consider the future. We should not put all of our hope and our trust in material things. And that we do want to be careful that we don't become indebted to the point that our whole lives are spent trying to pay for our debts rather than being free to operate out of a position of love and charity. And so, yes, the Bible does talk about that. And Romans 13, 8 does, in a sense, in form our bigger understanding, but he's not, this is not prohibition about going to the bank and getting a loan, getting a note, okay? In fact, if that were the case, then there are, 
well, it just doesn't, it just doesn't fit, right? I mean, even our modern baking practices and those things just don't, they, they don't, uh, it, it's not the same. But it is, it is an explicit and a direct statement about how we are to, how we are to not be indebted to anyone except for love. Meaning, okay, if we're to fill in the blanks or, or, or try to, to um, interpret what these verses are telling us, is that our primary obligation is to love others the way that God has loved us. And so the commandments, he lists the commandments. It's interesting that he doesn't list the whole of the commandments. He doesn't list all 10 of the commandments, but he points specifically to the commandments that deal with our horizontal relationships with each other, right? In verse 9, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment, he says, is summed up in this word, And then he points to a passage of Scripture in the book of Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. It was Jesus who said that the first and the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And then he says, and the second is is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Even Jesus taught how this surmises the heart of the law, that that the point of the law is ultimately to point us to love God and love others. And so you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus taught, the scriptures teach, and then he goes on, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You want to put the law into practice? You want to fulfill what the law teaches? You want to do what the law says? Then you should love others with the love that God has given to you. Because isn't that ultimately a demonstration that we understand what love is all about? So think, for example, think, for example, of a parable that Jesus told. Jesus told the parable of the unforgiving servant. And in the parable of the unforgiving servant, Jesus tells a story of a man who owes so much debt that it's almost incalculable, almost, almost incomprehensible, the, the, the amount of debt that this man owes to someone else. And he goes to the one to, to whom he's indebted, and that man forgives his debt. That same man of who the debt was forgiven then goes to someone else who owes him a, a fraction, an, a, 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 mere, a mere decimal of, of what he owed. And he demands that that man pay his debt, and he has him thrown into prison until he can pay the debt. So then the one who forgave the, the enormous debt, finds out that the man he had forgiven didn't forgive the debts that were owed to him. And he has that man arrested. And the point of the story that Jesus is telling is to point us to God's love and, and the picture of the gospel and how we're to live in light of that. We have been forgiven of so much. Our debt against God, when we consider our sin debt, was enormous, and yet God forgave that debt and has forgiven us and now we are set free to, to live in the freedom that comes through the forgiveness of Christ. And if we don't love others with the same love that was given to us, then we don't really understand the love that was given to us. If we aren't willing to love others in light of how we have been loved, then it shows that we don't really understand the love that we've been given. And that's the point here. That's the point. 
Because the day is at hand, because we sense the urgency of the moment, because we understand the need in this moment in time, we are to love others. We're to love others in light of how we have been loved, we have been forgiven. We're to love others. So because the day is at hand, we must love others. It's a demonstration of our, of our knowledge, of our acceptance of the gospel. Secondly, because the day is at hand, we must wake from sleep. Verse 11, I love how he says this. Besides this, you know the time. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Believers in the first century lived with the awareness that Jesus was coming back. And, and they believed, and you can tell this by the writing of, particularly Paul especially, but the writing of the New Testament authors, that there was this belief, there was this, 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 this hope that they had, that they, they thought Jesus would be coming back soon. And from that time to now, believers have continued to live with that same pressing reality that Jesus is coming again someday. And the, the fact of the matter is, we don't know exactly when that day will be, but we, we know that we're instructed Instructed to live in light of Jesus' return. In fact, in the book of Acts, Luke, who writes the book of Acts, tells us in Acts that, that he has fixed a day, that the Lord has fixed a day. There is a day that's coming that he has fixed. Uh, this is Acts 17, 31. And we're to live in light of that day. We're to live in light of that promise, trusting in Jesus, because we know that he's coming again. As Paul says here, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, to wake up. When you sleep, what do you do? You're, you're inactive, right? When you sleep, you're, you're dormant. Now, some people are less inactive than others because some people are, are, you know, they move a lot in their sleep. Some people walk in their sleep. They talk in their sleep. They carry on conversations with others. But the idea generally is that when we sleep, we rest, we're dormant. But when we're awake, we get up and we're active and we do things. So, Clearly, the point that Paul is making here is we're to wake up, we're to be active, we're to, we're to work. It's not the time for rest. It's not the time for sleep. It's not, we will rest someday, but now is the time for action. Now is the time for us to, to act. Why? Because salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Again, this is speaking of salvation in the sense of the ultimate salvation when we face the coming judgment of Christ. That salvation, that day of our judgment is closer now than it's ever been. And we know that some of that is just, it's just plainly true, right? Every day that we live, we're a day closer to the end than we were the day before. Yes, so we get it. But the point is that we would live with an awareness, that we would live with, and, and I'll use this word, urgency, that we would live with a passion, our passions stirred because we believe that Jesus is coming again. And so we must act. We must act. Third, we see this, that because the day is at hand, we must push back darkness. Verse 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. In the book of Isaiah, in the book of Ephesians, here in, in, in this book, in the book of Romans, we see the language of the armor, putting on the armor of God. 
being surrounded by God's armor. And that's such a helpful way for us to think of this because we, we are engaged in a spiritual battle. We are spiritual people who are engaged in a spiritual battle against spiritual forces, and we need God's protection. We need his armor. We need his covering. As we seek to act, as we seek to work, as we seek to, even as I've phrased it here, push back the darkness. This week, I was, I was able to attend a, a meeting at Henderson Hills Baptist Church in Edmond that was put on by our International Mission Board. And so our International Mission Board is organized. That's the, that's the, the international or the global mission sending agency of our Southern Baptist Convention. And the International Mission Board is organized around what they call affinity, affinity groups. And so they have essentially we've divided up the people of the world according to these these affinity groups. And it is somewhat regional, but it's not just regional. For example, one of the one of the breakouts that I went to was on reaching European peoples. And the European people affinity includes what you think of as Western Europe, but it also includes it also includes places like Australia and New Zealand. Why is that? Well, because they were colonized. Those, those nations were, were at least one point uh, British colonies, and so they were colonized. They're English-speaking peoples, and so they're a part of this European affinity. And so the world is divided up into North Africa and the Middle East. There's Europe. There's what they call the Americas, which is essentially South America and, and surrounding areas, the Americas. There is uh, South Asia. There's Southeast Asia and the Pacific Rim. And then there are deaf peoples. These are the, the way that our International Mission Board has, has organized itself in order to strategically go about reaching the people of the world. And one of the, another breakout that, that I attended was on reaching South Asian peoples. Now, South Asia includes India. The, the South Asian affinity includes India. And India is a country that has my heart because I've been to India a couple of times on, on different mission trips. The population of South Asian affinity group, and so that's India, Bhutan, Pakistan, the Maldives, Bangladesh, uh, these, these nations together, that, that, uh, Nepal, I, I skipped Nepal, these are all a part of the South Asia of affinity. And every day in the South Asian affinity group, where the population of that affinity group is 1.8 billion people and, and climbing, every day there are, there are uh, over 35,000 people a day from among the, the South Asian affinity people that die and enter into, enter into eternity, into spiritual darkness, because they die without faith in Jesus. Each day, more than 35,000. I forget the exact number that the IMB publishes. It's probably readily available on their website, but it's something like 37,000 and something. And so, in other words, if you were to take in a week's time, a quarter of a million people a week die without Jesus among the South Asian people and enter into eternity in spiritual darkness, in lostness, destined for judgment and damnation because of their sin. And hearing those statistics and hearing the numbers is, 
it's, it's sobering. It's, it's meant to, well, it ought to, it ought to wake us up. When the text here talks about how we should wake because the day is at hand, when it tells us that we're to cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light, the reason is because the task is greater now than it's ever been. Did you realize that today, uh, on the world today, and on, on planet Earth today, there are some eight billion and counting people. There are more people who have lived in this century from 2000 to 2022. More people have lived in the 21st century than in all of the rest of human history combined, historians tell us. And around the globe today, there are billions, let that word sink in, billions who don't know Jesus. Tens of thousands a day who die without faith in Jesus. Why does Paul tell us to wake up? Is because church, we have a job to do. And it's so easy for us to be comfortable here in our, in our, in our culture with all of the, com- the comforts of a, of, a, of a first world, all of the comforts of our modern technology and our modern lives and these things. And it's so easy to just be self-indulgent and self-centered and, 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 and selfish that we miss this reality every day. But you know, it's not just the ends of the earth. This is true in our community as well. When you look around our community, you see all the signs of of spiritual darkness, of brokenness, of lostness. This morning, there are churches all around Chickasha where, where Christians have gathered like we've gathered in this place for worship. And if every one of our churches was full to its capacity, if every if every chair, every seat, and every pew in every one of our churches, our, our evangelical gospel-centered churches was full this morning, we wouldn't have reached half of our city for Jesus. Because all around us is spiritual darkness. All around us there is lostness. Why does Paul write that we need to wake up? Because the day is at hand. Because the hour has come. Because it is more needed now than ever for God's people to wake up and to push back the darkness, to engage our lost neighbors and our friends with the gospel, to share the message of Jesus with people around us. Because every day people die apart from Christ and they step into eternity without Jesus. And we have the message of Christ. We have the gospel. We have a solution for the lostness. Sadly, so much of the time we're comfortable and we're unwilling to be stirred to do anything about it. This is why we're told to love others with the love that's been given to us. This is why we're told to wake from sleep. This is why we're told to push back darkness because the, the day is at hand. It's time for us to act. But he's not finished. He goes on to say in, in the next verse, let us walk properly Because the day is at hand, we must walk properly. What does it mean for us to walk properly? Well, he he explains. He gives us some, some understanding. As in the daytime, right? Meaning that when we can see, when we know what's happening, when with our wits about us, 
He says, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in, uh, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Well, each of these are indicative of a, of, a, of a godless view of the world, right? Each of these is indicative of people whose mart, their, their lives, their minds, their hearts, their marts as I made up a word just a second ago, right? It's putting all that together. Their minds, their hearts, their, their lives are marked by, by no evidence of faith in Jesus. This is, this is indicative of people who live for themselves, who live for the moment, who live for their pleasures, who satisfy and gratify themselves with their desires. And what Paul says is, it's time, church, for us to wake up. Because all around us, there are people who just chase after what they want. They just chase after what they desire. And in the end, it leads to their destruction. We have the solution. We have the answer. We have what they need. And so the day is at hand. We must walk properly. We shouldn't live like the rest of the world lives. Why? Because we don't put our hope where the rest of the world puts its hope. We shouldn't live and walk like the rest of the world walks because our hope is fixed to something else. Because our faith and our trust is not anchored to ourselves, but to Jesus who died on the cross to pay the price for our sin. And finally, he says this, because the day is at hand, we must put on Christ. Verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. To put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that we've, we've taken off. I want, you to, I want you to picture it this way, using this language of put on Jesus. It's as if we're to take off the old way. We're to set aside the old identity. We're to set aside the old belief, the old understanding, the old person, and we're to put on the new, which is Jesus. That through faith in Jesus, we're to be made something new. We're to live in a way that's different. Why do we live differently? It's not because we're trying to earn God's favor. We don't, we're not called to walk differently and live differently because we think we shouldn't be under any delusion whatsoever that, that through living good lives, through being good people, somehow we could earn God's favor. We are utterly hopeless when it comes to saving ourselves. And yet God saved us and he lavished his love on us. He's poured out mercy and grace on us. Through faith in Jesus, we have been forgiven. Why are we to wake up? Why are we to act and push back darkness? Why are we to live knowing that the day is at hand? Why ultimately do we put on Jesus? It's because we understand. We understand that the day is coming when Jesus will return. That there's, that the, 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 the day is at hand in as much as we have the answer now. We understand these truths now. We see plainly as in the day now that we know, we know where sin leads. We know the destruction, the brokenness, the pain, the, the, just the, the uselessness. We know what sin produces in our hearts and our lives. Why? Why would we satisfy and gratify those desires? Instead, we're to put on Christ. Jesus himself was the one who said, and, and the Gospels record this, that we're to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him. You can look in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, where Jesus says that. And, and Jesus means the same thing, essentially. We're to set aside the cares, the things of this world, to focus on Jesus. 
We're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's, that, involves, that involves many things. It, but first and foremost, in order to put on Jesus Christ, we have to trust him by faith. We have to look to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin. And if there's never been a moment when you have surrendered your heart and your life to Jesus, then you've never truly put on Christ. Because first and foremost, putting on Christ means that I identify with him. That I identify through the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus that made payment for my sin. That I am forgiven through faith in the one who gave his life for me. If there's never been that moment, then in a few minutes, even as we move into a time where we, where we reflect and respond to this truth, then I pray that you would make today the day that you surrender your heart and your life to Jesus, that you would make this the day that you call on him as Savior and Lord. Maybe you've heard the gospel so many times before. Maybe you've heard the message of the gospel before, but today with with, with new eyes, you see this truth. With, with a fresh understanding, God is working to help you see that you've never truly trusted in Jesus by faith. You've never, as this passage says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that during our invitation that you would make today the day that you respond to faith in him. Today the day that you put on Christ. Not only does it mean that we trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin, but it also means that we walk in light of what his, his work accomplished for us. That we live in light of these truths. It's, it's, like, it's like this is first and foremost. Putting on Christ is first and foremost. And then everything else that we've talked about falls in line. As we love others because Jesus loved us. As we wake from sleep because we understand the urgency of the moment. As we push back darkness because we recognize the brokenness, the pain, and that we have the solution. And we walk properly as we seek not to satisfy the desires of our, of our fallen flesh, but rather to, to glorify Jesus. We're to put on Christ, to put him first, to live for him. As we understand that the day is at hand. Today's the day. Now is the day. This is the moment. This is the hour. What are we waiting for? Let today be the day that we count the cost and we surrender everything to Jesus. In a moment, we're going to move into a time of invitation, a time of response. And in that time of invitation today, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, then even as we sing the song, I'll be standing here at the front, Brad will be standing here at the front as well. We would love nothing more than to walk you through a prayer of commitment that you would surrender your heart and your life to Jesus today. And so even after we pray and we stand and we sing, even, even now in this moment, if you want to surrender your life to Jesus, then you step out on the aisle, you come forward, let us visit with you, let us pray with you and lead you to commit your life to Jesus. Perhaps you're here and you've, trusted Jesus. You know that you've committed your life to him. You've asked him or trusted him for the forgiveness of your sin. You've asked him to be the Lord, the Savior of your life. But the reality is you're not living with the sense of urgency. It's in some sense, it's as if you're still asleep. And this morning, God's word to you is wake up. Wake up. Act. Respond. Push back darkness. Love others. Make a difference in this world because the, the hour and the need is great. Even as he says, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we begin. Friends, wake up. Now is the moment. Today is the day. 
Let's make this be the day that we live for Jesus by giving him everything, by making him truly the Lord of our lives. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we've heard your word this morning. We understand your truth. Now move in our hearts. Spirit, bring the, the conviction to us that, that you bring and, and stir within us that we would turn from our sin, we would turn from our, our wickedness, our rebellion, that we would trust in you by faith. And not only that we would trust you, but that we would, we would live and act as if we recognize the urgency of the moment. Lord, when we consider the darkness around us, the spiritual darkness around us, stir our hearts to live as people of the light, to cast off the darkness, to put on the armor of light, to live for you, Jesus. Move in our hearts and our lives. And Jesus, as we seek to walk in obedience to this, as we, as we understand what it means to put on Jesus and to live with the, the, the awareness that the day is at hand, give us that passion. Give us the urgency move our hearts as we respond in obedience to you. All this we pray in your name this morning. Amen.